welcome back to Feature Presentation. My name is Patrick. My name is Taylor. And this is, I think, our first live theater episode of this podcast. Well, we've spoken about Almost Famous before. Um, oh, that's true. We did, we, did a, we did a movie Broadway musical comparison. Yeah, but this is our first just like dedicated theater episode. So we um, recently saw two shows on Broadway, had a two-show day. Just figured we'd talk about both of them because we have plenty of thoughts. You clicked on this episode so you know the two shows that we saw. We saw the new uh, revival, really the first Broadway revival of Merrily We Roll Along. And then uh, that was our matinee. And then the evening we saw Here Lies Love, the David Byrne, Fatboy Slim musical. We'll talk about those in that order, I think. So we'll start with Merrily. We will give a very quick disclaimer that uh, many, many, many years ago, Taylor and I both worked on a production of Merrily We Roll Along. So needless to say, we are very familiar with the text. Yeah, and if you didn't know, now you know. Uh, Patrick oh, and I. Let's not do that. Let's not do the puns. Uh, Patrick and I were a theater major, so we're obviously abundantly qualified to talk about this in every way, shape, and form. Um, we went to a small liberal arts school, so we're very entitled to our opinions. <laughs> yes, yes, you could say that. So this is of the revival of the New York Theater Workshop production that transferred to Broadway a couple months ago. It is, of course, the. Daniel Radcliffe, Jonathan Groff, Lindsay Mendez led production. Um, Merrily, of course, being one of the few, one of the rare Sondheim flops, was a massive flop when it um, came to Broadway the first time. Only played 16 performances. One of the rare Hal Prince total misfires where his entire concept for the show was just kind of a mess. And Merrily, for a long, long time, has kind of just been like a cult musical. Um, people that, like that tends to go to colleges and high schools a lot randomly. Well, I do think that there is like um, there is how Prince did have something when he he thought about children doing it. I think that there is something to aging back because, of course, Merrily takes place over the course of about 20 years, but it, it goes backwards in time. Um, so you see where all of these people end up and then it goes all the way back to. Um, their, their losses, their triumphs, um, all the way back to meeting each other. I think there is something to aging back into the age that you are. And then there's something kind of, I don't know, introspective about that. Where am I going to go? Am I going to make all of these wrong decisions? Blah, blah, blah. But the problem with Merrily <laughs> is we've learned, uh, really, you know, after taking a step back after a couple of years and, and watching it here is that the show itself really is not very good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I, so in the production that we worked on, I was in the show. Patrick was kind of viewing it, the whole thing, the whole piece. He was working on direction in some capacity. Um, but being in the show, like, I was backstage a bunch. I was not a lead. I was, you know, just like, so there were so many things that, like, I was not super tuned into the script other than, like, what I was saying. Like, that's, I mean, I, if you're an actor listening to this, you're going to be like, that's horrible of you. Yeah, well, I'm not an actor, so um, I just didn't care uh, to really dive that deep. Um, and so I was just kind of a small part. And, like, there was so much of the 
book that I, I didn't remember. Like, I'm sure I knew it at the time and that I knew all the beats at the time. Like, not the beats. I, I knew the beats going into this. But I'm sure I knew all of the B plots and all the C plots at the time. But watching it from the audience, I was like, oh, I don't even really remember that. And like, oh, wow, I don't remember that line. And did I say that line? Because I don't remember saying that line. Um, and yeah, you realize that the script is so, yeah, sorry, the, the book is so clunky. It is so clunky. It, it, there's no real flow to it. Things just kind of exist awkwardly. Um, it doesn't really like flesh characters out the best, but then you get into these songs and these moments and these themes that are just abundant with uh, just how rich they are. So, of course, this is uh, Sondheim Music and a book by George Firth, who um, also worked on um, a Company with him and Getting Away with Murder with him. So, um, some highs, some lows for sure. Um, yeah, the book is – I think that's kind of why it's it's become kind of a cult thing, right, is you listen to the cast recordings because there's the original. I think that there was like a – london production like in the early 2000s there was the encores one and so you've got a ton of um different cast recordings and people have fallen in love with the music because there is really great i think it's there's some stuff in there that i think is really some of sometimes best and the book is just not very good and i don't think that people realize that you know when you listen to the recordings obviously you, you don't get that so um we've got this revival now and They've kind of just gone, and I, I want to catch um, – I don't want to get this wrong. Um, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Oh, wait. Oh, Maria Friedman, of course. Um, I, I knew I was going to get her name wrong. Um, her, her production, they've kind of just gone like – a lot of this is not very good. And we know that. And we're just going to do it. We don't need to, like, try and justify everything. Like, you kind of go, like, oh, there's a reason why this flopped. Um, the, the concept stuff really seems wacky and really did not seem to help the cause. But you watch um, that. Co- I mean, this concept from the first the kind of trial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You watch that do- uh, Lonnie Price's documentary, um, Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. And you go like, oh, Marilee's so great. And they all had such great intentions. Like, what happened? You know? And. And they loved it so much, and it is such a great piece. And you go like, no, it's kind of not. And the music is really the saving grace. And so what do you have? You have Jonathan Groff and Daniel Radcliffe and Lindsay Mendez singing the hell out of it and committing to it, even though it's not very good. And that alone makes it worthwhile and makes it sort of, in my mind, definitive because I think you're going to – there are going to be productions and there will continue to be productions. There have been productions where people are going to try and make some of these things that just don't work. And they updated the book at some point, like the eighties or like the nineties, I think some of the things that just don't work. They're going to really try and make them work. And this just doesn't care as much about that and wants to instead just give you the best version of what it is as they can give you. Yeah, if you're if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking like 
this sounds really familiar. Where have I heard this musical from? I know I've never listened to it. It was the musical that they do in Lady Bird. And <laughs> which I, is so funny. Which is, and I want to talk about that for a second. That's so funny. And like in that small snippet, first of all, you just like resonate de- deeply if you're a theater kid. But it's that like when you're young and when you're hungry and you're like an actress or you're working in, a, you know, your high school theater or whatever, you want to take all of these words on the page as Bible. You want to find the, the you know, the Easter eggs and you want to find the moment and you want to just like give it all your all. You know, that's kind of your mission, which makes it so cringe for like high schoolers to do this, I think. But this production, what this production does so well is like they're able to really speak speed past the bs and but then they take these like hearty beats when they need to happen and it really just like enriches the themes um and i think that that's brilliant like i think that that's really really great i mean you can't cut out the book you you can't rewrite it especially now that sondheim has passed you know that that ship has sailed more or less um so you can't just like rewrite this piece but what you can do is you can be really clear and intentional, intentional, intentional about the moments that you are going to prioritize. You can find the moments that you're going to go like, this moment is going to be an anchor. That moment doesn't even need to have words or music. It can just be a feeling. But there's clearly in the direction and the performances, they, they have mutually found the nuggets of like, this is the heart of it. And these are the many hearts of it. And we're going to focus on those things. Everything else is just there. And it's additional, but it's not the heart. So the story, of course, is about uh, Frank and Mary and Charlie. They're three best friends. And, you know, if you're thinking of the story chronologically, they they all meet when they're insanely poor and all they want is to, to write. Mary and Charlie are writers, and, and Frank um, composes music. And all they want to do is write, and all they want to do is put on shows, and they want to write musicals, and they want to write novels, and they want to write plays. And it's sort of them finding some of that success, some love, some loss. and Some th- finding more than others. Right, exactly. And then um, the dangers of that success. But it, of course, starts with the dangers of that success and works backwards. And... I really mean it when I said I think it has some of Sondheim's best stuff. Um, obviously, everybody loves Franklin Shepard, Inc., which is a great song. That's, um, you know, Colbert recently said when they were on there, oh, Sondheim has a fast pitter-patter song? I'm shocked, right? That's the fast pitter-patter song of this show. Um, uh, opening Doors, kind of, too. Opening Doors, another great one. Um, I think Not a Day Goes By is a better song outside of the show. I don't know how well it works in the context of the show. I agree. It's so funny because when we were working on the production, my favorite songs were Not a Day Goes By and, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Um, Good Thing Going. Yeah. Uh, two, like, beautiful ballads. That was bad. That was Good Thing Going, I think, is... is gorgeous i think that yeah good thing going is like one of my favorite musical songs like of all time like i just think it's so beautiful but it was funny because like that those were the songs that i loved like listening to backstage and like being like um i would just like my heart would melt listening to them watching them in the production i was like come on let's keep it snappy folks why do we have to slow it down (laughs) no 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 i I disagree um also that it makes sense that those are the songs that that made it 
outside of the show. Um, people have recorded those songs. People do them in cabarets all the time. Like, they work outside of the context of the show. There's a lot of stuff in it that's kind of messy. Um, but I think the thing about this show is that it is so thematically rich and it has such great things to say about growing up and about um, the way that you treat your friends and how you should treat your friends and who are your friends and who becomes your extended family and this and that and the other thing. I think. What are your priorities in life? Right. What are the, you know, what are the, the things in your life that you're going to s- extend special care to? Um, yeah, it's, it's so rich. The dangers of fame. There's so much there that I think that they kind of decided here, like, we really want to hit the best moments and we really want to hit the themes. And if we do that, that'll be the best possible version of this show. And I think it was. I think it was, too. Um, let's break down these performances. We'll start with, you know, I we worked on the show. We'll stop saying that. But you kind of think of it as like a, a piece for three people. Um, and aside from the first scene where one character is not in it because they've been excommunicated, basically, um, because of, you know, their, their ups and downs, they're all in every scene. And so you kind of think of it as this trio, this, this play written for three people. And one thing that they, and also um, I was going back and reading reviews, Jesse Green pointed this out in the New York Times as well, saying, oh, I think we all kind of thought Merrily was a trio piece for a long time until we realized, no, it's about Franklin. It's about Frank, and this production really drives it home with they um, have this sort of framing device that's in there that's not in the script and is not spoken at all. You know, it's just kind of a, a way of staging it where you go like, oh, this is ju- really just about this one guy. And because he's the one who goes through the most change, he's the one who learns the most, whether he wants to or not. And that is really helped by the fact that Jonathan Groff is giving probably his best performance ever in this show. It. I, again, like I found, I sound like such an idiot, dumb teenage actor when I say this. It never occurred to me when we were working on this show, even though I knew it inside and out. It never occurred to me that this was Frank's show. Never. I always saw it as a trio piece. If anything, I saw it as a uh, a pentuplet piece. Well, it didn't occur to um, Jesse Green either. I don't yeah. think it really occurred to any of us except for Mariah Friedman. And then it's like, oh, of course, like that's the way in. But. Yes, and I hear that. But I think what's so what blew me away from about this production is, you know, sure, maybe throughout the course of the show you realize that it's Franklin's piece, the direction. No. You realize when they're doing their not like they're they're, you know, the opening number. It's not even the opening number, it's the opening just like sounds of the song. What is it, the entract? Is that what I'm trying to say? Um I always the overture? Thank you, the overture. I was, could only think of act two. Um when they're doing the overture, they have this beautiful choreography in which everybody is posing questions. Well, there's the 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 overture is just the band, and then the first song is called "Merrily We Roll Along." I think that's what you're referring to. Yes, but also the overture, like Franklin is just on stage alone. It's just beautiful. Like I just can't really get over it. Like they they cement from the 
very beginning from the first note that you hear from the moment that Jonathan Groff enters the stage and just sits there and like thinks about his life and like contemplates himself it is clear that this is Franklin's show and like you then like that it's solidified so strongly you don't have to continue questioning it yourself throughout the rest of the show it's just like oh my god I'm such an idiot oh my god yeah this is his show oh my god I can't believe that that never occurred to me and listen, I've given uh, Jonathan Groff a lot of shit for a long time, and I think uh, that's largely deserved. I think he's very silly. He's very, very silly. And that has worked in things like Hamilton, where he got to, let's be honest, folks, rip off what Brian Darcy James was doing. But he got to be very silly, and he got to go over the top. And like that's why people love him. He's a very charming guy, very affable guy. This really challenges that. Because the character that he plays is a dick for a lot of the show. And, and it's also easy to play him as, like, a very, like, um, baseline dick. Like, there aren't, like, uh, I mean, yes, the I don't want to make it seem like the show isn't nuanced at all. But you could play Franklin as one tone, just a dick, and it would play just and then fine. You, and then you eventually age backwards and, oh, now he's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, mm-hmm. you know. But he's he's... Characters are making excuses for him, and he's really, really a prick. And he gets to kind of play on that a little bit and be like, well, we all like Jonathan Groff, like, even if he's silly, even if I think he's kind of a... He really falls into that. We've talked about this on... We used to talk about the Vince Vonathon. I feel like we've talked about on all of our podcasts at some point in time. The goober performances, right? Andrew Garfield, no matter how much he tries, is a goober. I've always thought that Jonathan Groff... Austin Butler. We talked Austin Butler, exactly. We talked about Jonathan Groff on this podcast when we talked about Knock at the Cabin. Just no matter how much he tries, he's just kind of a goober. And this, I thought, number one, he sort of maybe for the first time broke past that, but also used a little bit of that sensibility of like... He knows that he's likable. He knows that some people are going to buy a ticket to this just to see him. And and that's something like that he... He didn't have to eat this hard. Right. He <laughs> did not have to eat and leave zero fucking crumbs. And he did. There's something that he can use in that for the character. And he, re- he just fucking crushes. I mean, he really just leaves us all for dead. I want to give, like, a very clear disclaimer that... What I'm about to say in no way speaks negatively on anyone else in the cast, okay? But Jonathan Groff acts circles around every single other person. And that is not me saying he's a he's way better than everyone else. He's in his own league. Like, he is, like, there's no comparison. Like, he is phenomenal. And I feel like it's really important, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a theater person. There's nothing wrong with being a musical person. But I think that it's important for me to preface this with I am not. Like, yes, I studied theater. Musicals, not my thing. Really, they truly are not. They have to be incredibly strong for me to be a musical person. Um, and for me, like, you know, I like Little Shop. I like Spring Awakening. Some of those, like, you know, more standalone. The songs just go really hard things. But, like, I am not. I don't even like Hamilton. I know that's so ludicrous. I mean, I appreciate it, but I don't listen to it. Um, I'm not a Jonathan Groff person. I'm not a diehard theater person. I'm not a musical person. Um... But And so when I say this, I don't say that as someone who just, like, already loves him and, like, watched Glee. I say this as someone who's always actually been really hesitant about him and has always really lumped him into the goober performance and has always been like, ah, are you just really attractive and can sing really well? I don't know. 
Um, and this made me go like, whoa, maybe I was so wrong about you because this is, this is unbelievable what you're doing on stage right now. Yes. And I think that, um, you're totally right. And I want to read this thing that, that Jesse Green said, and then kind of combine these two thoughts in his New York times review where he gives it the critics pick and also says, um, Jonathan Groff supported by Daniel Radcliffe and Lindsay Mendez, which is really what it is. And that's also, they're going to, they're going to harp on that to try and spread out some Tony consideration. I think you put Daniel Radcliffe in the supporting category and you can win two of them. Right. Um, but he writes, Merrily is thus no longer, as it seemed in 1981, the story of the gradual, almost inevitable dimming of youth's sweet illusions, but rather the story of their falsity in the first place. Frank is only devoted to Mary and Charlie when he doesn't have access to anyone more useful. To think he turned into that monster is a mistake. He always was one, as Sondheim clearly understood. That's what everyone does, Mary sings once the three-way friendship has collapsed. Blames the way it is, on the way it was, on the way it never, ever was. And you go like, oh my God, like Sondheim is such a genius. He, like, he was the only one that knew this piece for 40 years. He wrote it. He put it right in front of our fucking faces. I know. I have like goosebumps right now <laughs> going like, I'm such an idiot. And no one got it until Maria Friedman. No one. No one ever got it. Right? And picking Jonathan Groff is so inspired. And he gives, I think, a career-defining performance. I think it's – listen, I, I don't want to say I didn't respect him before. That's not true. I always respected really the hell out of what he did. But I always kind of thought it was one note, and even when he was doing the Spring Awakenings and stuff, he was he was a kid then, you know. So like, what are you gonna do? He kind of. It's, I mean, it really is okay. Someone's gonna crucify me for this. It's giving White Boy of the Month a little bit, like well, White that... Boy of the Month who can sing and is hot and is like like at the time, especially during Spring Awakening, everyone thought he was straight, which is way more attractive, <laughs> you know. And then everyone finds out he's gay, and then he's like, oh well, he's so sweet and gay, and like you know, but like you know, there was like there's a I think there's a lot of reason for, like, the cult, like, obsession with Jonathan yeah. Groff outside of his talent. Like, Gleek, or Gleek, not, if you are a Gleek, <laughs> Glee is a cult classic thing. It's, like, a very culty thing. Um, and then Hamilton, obviously, also, like, a very culty thing um, for, for the people who are obsessed with that. So, like, he has able to, you know, outside of his just, like, raw natural talent, he has also been able to build a very distinct, brand um around himself and his his looks and his swagger you know or lack thereof um so i think that that's important when when talking about this well i think because of that he's able to um and i, I mentioned this before and i've i've said it a million places a million times i think and many people think that jeremy jordan sort of ruined an entire generation of musical theater boys because they all listened to, to Newsies and, you know, maybe eventually they listened to Bonnie and Clyde, but really they all listened to Newsies in the last five years and they wanted to be Jeremy Jordan. And now this entire generation is just Jeremy Jordan's and Jonathan Groff because they are more or less the same age. I think I should feel like I should check that before I really commit to this theory. Uh, Jonathan Groff is, uh, 38 jeremy jordan is 38 i nailed it because they are the same age he didn't get jeremy jordanified he was able to be his own thing and now he feels in this very uh 
this role that sort of feels tailor-made for him in some way that no one else has made definitive. He feels so fresh and so new because he's doing something different. He's doing something you never see. He's doing something um, people aren't doing, and he's just so, so, so good. I, I want to go on a very mini side tangent for a second and just say I recently saw, actually for the second time um, seeing this production, but first time with this person, um, I recently saw the off-Broadway production of Little Shop, and I saw Corbin Blue, who obviously we all know from High School Musical. I'm also not going to speak on Constance Wu, um, but I'm, I saw Corbin Blue, and um, obviously High School Musical, and I know that he does a lot of stuff. He does excuse me, he does a lot of regional stuff in our area, we're in the D.C. area, and he'll do things at, uh, at regional theaters here, so, like, he's always booked and busy, he did, just did something at the Muni, like, he's he's always booked and busy, clearly he has shops, but I had never seen him live, um, and I have to say, like, watching him in Little Shop, for a similar reason, was such a breath of fresh air, because he also was not doing a Jeremy Jordan impression, Jeremy Jordan obviously also was Seymour recently, um, but, it, So you was know, Jonathan Groff? very true I forgot about that um and so Corbin Blue like in a very similar way like I you know would Corbin Blue work in the Muni and be off Broadway right now in Little Shop if he hadn't been in High School Musical I don't know I don't know what his career would look like if he didn't have that like huge pull and like you know fame and status associated with him with with this particular demographic however it was almost his like I don't want to say inexperience it was almost his like unpolishedness that made him like such a treasure for me watching that because it he didn't feel cookie cutter it felt so fresh it felt like just like a literal breath of fresh air that like you just don't experience anymore especially in revivals when you've been running for a while and you're on your seventh person then you really get into the copycats and it's it can be brutal and so um I just want to give credit where credit is due on that similar thing um Corbin Blue is still performing in a uh, little shop for a little bit longer if you want to go see it he's i think he's really wonderful uh we're running long so we, we need to kind of uh hustle through the other ones daniel radcliffe of course we were like cool we'll see daniel radcliffe it'd be cool to see harry potter in person yes we are of that generation where it'd be cool to see harry potter in person you noticed it right away you always like you can always notice from the first three notes it takes me like a good you know 30 seconds 60 seconds you were instantly like he's sick <laughs> yeah i can always hear it even we were watching <laughs> coming to feature presentation in like four months um is we're gonna recap all the hungry game movies there's a woman in the hunger games and i'm like did she have mono You're like she has allergies she's, she's like sick she was just sick for like an entire movie like jesus like did they film all, all of her scenes in three days and she was just like had the flu like anyways i can always hear when someone is sick and the moment he opened his mouth i was like oh he's sick i am because of that he was i mean and when i say sick i mean he was sick he like, was he, he couldn't, was sick he could he was he was chronically flat sick yeah like he was like i i literally will not speak on his musical performance um because it is just unfair to do so i am so glad he pushed through so that we could see him yeah, for our own selfish yeah. reasons like oh cool we got to see harry potter that's cool yeah. and but i'm not gonna be upset that i didn't get to hear his musical range i'm just happy that i saw him yeah people love him in this 
thought he was really great in how to succeed in business. Like, he can sing. There's no doubt about it. He could not sing the other day. Which, honestly, works okay for this role. I mean, other than, like, You kind of realize how much he doesn't have to do, and then you go, like, oh, duh, because it's Frank's show. (laughs) But also, like, you know, um, like, there are so many things. I don't want to say they're written in, but I think that they're very frequently kind of played this way. Like, he writes the words. There is no establishing thing that says Charlie is a singer. In fact, I think that there's a line that he's like, uh, please don't make me sing. I'm and really, why don't you sing, Frank? And Frank's like, no, 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 you sing. So it is kind of canon a little bit, I think, by some stretch of the imagination, that Charlie is just like a perfectly, you know, normal man singer who is more just like, like, uh, music making his regular voice musical and that's what Daniel Radcliffe had to do on this day he just kind of had to speak sing um I was watching Franklin Shepard Inc with like my head in my hands going like it's okay it's okay just get through it just get through it because I knew he was probably struggling he um it's funny because he came back from act two with significantly less frog in his throat and I kept (laughs) thinking like you know Jonathan Groff was like buddy take a Ricola and drink some throat coat and get on with it (laughs) and i just i like the idea even though i know that daniel's a serious actor and this is probably not his first time sick but i like the idea that he's like never used a vaporizer before and he's like come on like just here's my vaporizer get with it like that's my head cannon well at least by the time franklin shepherd rolled around everyone knew that he was sick because his Franklin Shepard Inc. was fine. And then as soon as the end of that, one guy went, Bravo! Yeah, 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 <laughs> Which yeah. you don't hear that much no, nowadays. No, So um, I think he was giving a, good for you for giving out your best effort. Yeah. I have to say, I felt like, you know, only speaking on the acting, obviously, I feel like he was really sweet in this. And I don't want to say sweet as, like, a, a, like as that diminishes the character, like, or as the diminishes the performance. I mean, like, sweet to his core in a really, like, intentional and, like, earnest way. Um, you know, Charlie and Frank are foils of one another, uh, another, even though, as we were talking about, we are just, we know now that it is Frank's show. Charlie is his foil. Charlie has this moral compass that Frank lacks. He has a, you know, he's a monogamous, which Frank's, which Frank lacks. He has, he cares about his family, which Frank, you know, doesn't really. Um, so I, I feel like, um, Daniel really like honestly truly deeply embodies that just like sweetness that like morality and it is a perfect foil to jonathan croft um and then Lindsay mendez is well do you have anything else to say about dan no Lindsay mendez i think um where she really shines is i think mary has a lot more um she has a lot more like uh, maybe other people would disagree this is just my opinion She has a lot more in the text that kind of supports her character's evolution. Like, she has a lot more clear, like, I'm an alcoholic, I drink a lot. She's got those Easter eggs that you were referring to. Yeah, she has, like, a lot of clear Easter eggs. So, like, you don't have to, I don't want to say you don't have to rely on the performance, but, like, it is less about direction. Like, there are just facts you are going to know about Mary because she speaks her mind constantly, um, and that's just a character trait. She is just, like, she is, like, a, a, um, uh, like a vocal processor she says in her first scene which is the last scene she says something along the lines of 
I, I never know. I, she says, <laughs> I say everything and then I go home and cry or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's just part of her character. So, so she has a lot to, like, work with in terms of that. And I do think that, like, even though those things exist and you could really clearly chart Mary's kind of regression throughout the course of the show or, you know, however you choose to look at it, um, she does really shine in just, like, making her human. Um, because I think Mary can easily become a caricature, uh, especially when you get into alcoholism. I think some actors really just go crazy with that and like, don't add a lot of like depth and heart to it. And I think Lindy, Lindsay Mendez does in, in such a way, there was a really cute moment where they're doing, um, old friends and they have this like really elaborate and really silly and really sloppy in an intentional way um musical number that they do because it's supposed to evoke like we are we hypothetically could just be friends doing this and like it's not so perfectly choreographed um but they let it you can tell that they're really friends because they started getting really loosey-goosey with it and then really even more loosey-goosey with it and at a certain point they're like laughing through it like genuinely and she just like totally messes up the blocking and Lindsay Mendez just went shit <laughs> and then they like couldn't get it back together and I, I think it's cute like I if you had told me that was choreographed I would have been like I love it like I love it I think that Lindsay brought a warmth to this trio for lack of a better you know I know it's, we're saying it's not a trio show but she did she brought so much warmth to this trio that I think otherwise would have lacked especially because um just in terms of like the actual story like Charlie and Frank are always butting heads even though there is a little bit of love there male love looks different you know Mary is in love with Frank what does that look like but she is like you know canonically the glue that ties them together and it feels like Lindsay Mendez is the bridge between Daniel Radcliffe and Jonathan Groff in a very real sense. The only time I've seen her uh, in person give a performance is I saw that last Broadway revival of Carousel. I think it was Jack O'Brien directed that production and that shows a fucking mess. It was a mess. Saw it in previews. It was, it was just a disaster and she was... I guess you would say like a a bright light in that production, but it was just such a mess that like I don't even really remember her. So all I really knew of her coming into this was like she's a Broadway vet. She she knows this shit. She's a great singer. You know, everybody's heard her voice at some time. And then this performance it gave me so much of a, a an appreciation for her and, and what she does and what she can do. And I think that um, uh, I hate to just like think of things in Tony nominations. But I think all three of them, because they're going to be in separate categories, obviously, are really going to get like a lot of love in this Tony season. And they should because I think that they are – it kind of feels like, oh, that's how we should do it now, and we never need to do it again. What did I say that about recently? I said that about a production of something recently where I was like, why would you literally ever do it after that? Um, it's done now. And I kind of feel that way about this. Like um, songs are great. The book is not. The rewrite, you know, didn't help anything at all. And um, I guess it probably, I'm sure the original was a true disaster, but it doesn't seem like it did. And um, kind of go like, oh, well, they have um, solved the Merrily problem and um, we can we can uh, move on now. With acknowledging that Jonathan Groth, again, is like just kind of in his own league. This is a production that really is like 
they it's like the sum of its parts that make it shine like it is the fantastic direction with the clear chemistry that these three people have together with phenomenal supporting performances that some we great even, costume moments some great costume moments phenomenal supporting performances that we haven't even gotten into yet because the the cast really is so strong all the way through and we are running along and we got to move on um but you know it is it is it is so much greater than the is that what i'm trying to say it's so much greater than the sum of its parts like yes all of them are individually so talented but they all elevate each other in such a robust way the other show that we saw of course is here lies love um this is the david byrne fat boy slim musical um primarily about uh, Imelda Marcos, who for a long time was the first lady of the Philippines. And um, for those that don't know the conceit of Here Lies Love, uh, the, the basic idea is for a long time, David Byrne wanted to do something set in a disco. He would go to discos and see um, sort of people um, singing to tracks, sort of karaoke style. And kind of liked that idea that you know you could kind of have a performance on a dance floor he found that interesting and then uh, was reading up on Imelda Marcos because she's a fascinating person we'll talk about that later and what a love she had for Studio 54 and she like put a nightclub in the uh, uh, president's home in the Philippines like and he kind of wanted to push these two ideas together so Here Lies Love for a long time has been put up in um, non-traditional theater spaces, big rooms, essentially. So you could have kind of a nightclub and people could move around and dance on the dance floor and you have these little stages, these little platforms that move around and the action kind of happens all around you. Um, and for a long time, they wanted to bring it to Broadway, but that's a very difficult thing because um, every Broadway theater, except for Circle in the Square, which is too small for this show, um, is a proscenium, is a is a traditional theater setup. Is it, most of them are historic theaters, so there isn't even like getting a getting approval to move things around right. if you wanted to. Right. So they eventually uh, uh, got in with the folks behind the Broadway theater that is the capital B capital T, the one called the Broadway Theater. Um, I don't know which of the um, organizations of the Broadway, but the point is, got in good with them. Finally, sort of convinced them to essentially rip out the entire lower level of the Broadway theater, which is the biggest house. I saw Miss Saigon in there. And when you sit in the back row of that theater, you actually get a nosebleed. I mean, you are far away. The house is huge. What they've done is they kind of built everything up so that um, the entire first floor is now a dance floor. All the seats are gone. The stage is gone. They've built their own little stage platforms things. Um, but it's all sort of raised up so that the front row of the mezzanine is now the front row of the theater. It's sort of the quote unquote best seat in the house. And you look in like a you look into like a pit. Like the because it's the first floor, it is like sub it is sub level. So yeah. you are looking into this like pit where there are like opportunities for elevation through like moving pieces but really you are like looking down into the floor below into you. the dance floor yeah so uh thanks to the folks at today ticks got a notification massive sale on here lies love standing room tickets and we were like fuck it let's do it like if there's a way does we kind of wanted to see this show uh, big david byrne fans um 
and kind of thought, well, if there's a way to do it, it's do the dance floor. So let's do it. We kind of thought, like, do we sit? Like, it was in our our uh, consideration for this second spot. We are, we were going for Merrily. We bought these Merrily tickets a long, long time ago and kind of had um, the space for a second show. And it was in our consideration. We're like, well, do we sit? Do we stand? Standing is kind of expensive. Sitting doesn't feel right. Um, but then when the sale hit, we were like, oh, well, done. Check. Problem solved. And uh, so we stood. We did the dance floor. And I will just start off by saying I've been thinking about this basically nonstop for the past five days. And I'm going to put it up there in my, like, in my Hall of Fame of my favorite theatrical experiences of my life. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty phenomenal. I, I don't want to be the, like, boohoo baby, but I'm going to be for a second. We were zonked uh, by this point in the day because we had been walking around. We got up, took a three-hour train to New York, walked around New York literally all day. Um, I had some Advil, a.k.a. a beer, and uh, then we made our way there, and then we had to literally run to go get a train home. So I was very tired and sleepy. Um, that actually was fine. The show, like, totally revived me. My one, like, is about with, like, 40, well, probably about, like, 30 minutes left. My lower back, I, it was like I was in, like, excruciating your back, pain. Your back started to hurt. My feet started to hurt. And we were definitely like, I kind of wish I was sitting right now. Yeah. But if we had been sitting, we would not have gotten this amazing experience. You know, so the show happens on these platforms. And, oh, I guess I should mention that Here Lies Love is closing in a couple weeks. Yeah, as you're listening to this, um, you don't have much time to It's, like, about it. two weeks. And if you listen to the show and you are in the area, like, you need to go. It is awesome. And the fact that it has been a flop is, like, number one, the most obvious shit in the world. I don't know why they ever thought spending $22 million on this would ever achieve anything. What, what, how would they ever even come close to breaking even? That's insanity to me. The fact that they thought it was a good idea is outrageous. But that doesn't mean the show isn't amazing. It really is. And, like, you should go. Tickets are cheap. There are a lot of empty seats. Yeah, I will say, like, honestly, like, I obviously I want the I want it to sell out. I don't want it to, you know, be empty. But, like, as we were on the dance floor, I was actually kind of grateful that it was a little more empty than usual yeah, because yeah. we could kind of move a little bit more, and we got such great views, which we'll talk about in a second. But you absolutely should go because I – listen – I, again, speaking on what you were saying, I work in theater marketing now. That is what I do. I can't imagine selling this show. It is a tough, tough sell, um, especially because, like, the audience who loves David Byrne is not necessarily the audience that is going to go stand in the pit of this musical. Um, Although, apparently, David Byrne does all the time. He goes, like, once a week, and he stands on the dance floor. Oh, I love he, that. He, like, loves it. Oh, I love that. That makes me so happy. I didn't know that he was located in New York. Yeah. Um, I guess that makes sense, but, um, yeah, you should absolutely go see it. I have a sneaking suspicion we will not see this piece for a very, very long time after or this. if ever yeah, again, if, I if mean, ever. where are they going to do it? I'm I being mean. optimistic and saying for a very, very long time, um, but it feels so right now, like, it feels so immediate and it feels so important. And for a show that was, um, you know, is based in a historical event from many, many, many years ago and then was also created many, many years before now, um, it 
it feels just like you he could have written this yesterday for this moment in time as a reflection um you should go see it you I, really there's no excuse not to we were um when we were going in to get uh we were asking the box office some questions a couple hours before the show started someone walked right up and said hi do you have any rush tickets available for the floor and they went what do you want yeah yeah <laughs> they were like yeah, yeah you, we how did. many how many <laughs> um so like you can get tickets and you should yeah yeah for sure um, so you go, if you do the, um, standing room, you have to check your stuff. You know, we give them our, our jacket and our backpack and then you go in and you're at this point, you're sort of like walking what is supposed to be backstage of the Broadway theater. And then you walk on to the dance floor and you can tell exactly where you are because if you look directly above you, you can see the proscenium arch. So you can say like, okay, right now I'm sort of straddling where the stage normally is and the front row of the audience. Obviously, it's been entirely covered, right? Um, and there's sort of this main platform in the middle and a disco ball. And you can say, like, okay, all the action is going to happen around this stage. There are stages behind you and in front of you and, and, and all this stuff, TVs and projections and all this stuff. You can't tell it's going to happen all around you. But what really begins to happen is these sort of handlers come out in these pink jumpsuits. It's giving Glossier. <laughs> um, you know about this. I like, don't have the time on this okay. podcast. It's okay. The Glossier, like Glossier brick and mortar stores, they all wear pink jumpsuits. Uh, okay. That's their uniform. <laughs> and Greta Gerwig on the set of Barbie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And they are sort of these uh, traffic controllers. And they have these, you know, sort of like uh, the, the people on the tarmac at airplanes, whatever their job is called. Yeah, there's little light things, and they like they will direct you because the stages will break apart and move and reconfigure. And it, you know, at one point it becomes a runway, and at one point it's sort of set up like a T. And then at one point they all scatter, so the entire floor is empty. And so the the stage is constantly moving. The people are constantly moving around you. The one thing that is sort of always sort of stays the same is, I feel like they they had some inclination just to stage things normally stage put some things just on a stage and create a picture like we know how to do right even though it is alex timbers behind this who does who does a lot of this half immersive stuff so all the way in the back there is a, a stage that does not move and the way that traffic flowed for a while we got placed in front of that stage and then we weren't moved for like half an hour. And not only were we not moved, but then they connected the, the actual proscenium stage to a middle piece with a catwalk where actors were constantly coming through and touching hands of people, like as if they're, you know, on their political campaign, but also very rock star esque. Um, and we were like, not only, it, we were touching the stage and the catwalk. So, like, we were getting it all for like 30 minutes and it was yeah. awesome it was so cool i felt like so important and i think another thing that like really reinforces this like very disco thing is again with your traditional kind of theater mind like what you expect in a theater where you're quiet and you don't talk and whatever not only are these people um directing you with their little flashlights they're going like come on people let's move it and there's like songs going on and these people are yeah. still yelling and people are talking to their friends but it wasn't distracting no. i didn't people get people taking pictures and their phones out yeah shit. i i i didn't i was not distracted at all i am usually like a person i mean patrick even had to say something to a guy on his phone during merrily because we were just those people who were like you're ruining our experience please put your phone away not that he said that exactly but like you know know we we can be 
Me- I was a lot uh, meaner than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just put your fucking phone away. Um, <laughs> I didn't say I'm that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, we can be those people. Like, I, I definitely am someone who gets very annoyed at the phones. Patrick gets very annoyed at the unwrapping of candy. Oh um, that is is that is truly his... Um, oh do you want to tell your mini story? Well, I don't know. Do I have a mini story? About you just, like, n- stopping a monologue while performing one time because... Oh, <laughs> I don't need to get into that, but... What I can't stand is with the, the little the little hard candies is people, they unwrap it slower because they want to be less, they want to be quieter, but that doesn't actually change the volume of the crinkling. All it does is just make it fucking last forever. Yeah, it's brutal. So anyway. I say all that to say... <laughs> Patrick and, I, show all. Patrick and I can get very distracted by things, yeah. but with all the distractions in the world, I actually felt so immersed. I did not feel like anything going on around me was taking away from my experience. I wasn't getting nervous that I was bumping into people or that they were bumping into me. I really was just hooked by these performances and this story and how it unraveled. And, you know, I will be honest, I did not know anything about this history prior to going. Um, you don't need to. I think that they explain it really clearly and beautifully. Um, and so, like, I was just, like, entranced learning about this. Like, not only enjoying the atmosphere, but, like, actually learning about it in a way that I feel like I have not learned so well in a historical drama in a very long time. Yeah, so, you know, when the show, a couple hours after the show, Today Tick sends you a text and says respond with zero to 100 your score of the show and they i guess they're teamed up with that website show score which is actually a pretty good website um and i was like 99 like i fucking loved it and the only reason why i didn't give it a 100 is i did feel this is so crazy to say i did feel sort of trapped up at the proscenium stage because for two reasons number one um I knew that we had to leave. <laughs> we knew that yeah. we had to get out of there because of our train. And it changed our ticket times. I will yeah. say, like, that's one. We bought, when this show was supposed to be at 7, we had a 10 o'clock train. And then they moved the show to 8. We still had a 10 o'clock train. Yeah, so that's, like, one bummer. I mean, it's no one in particular's fault, except if it is your fault, then fuck you. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know that all theaters are trying out different times right now. It, it is they, just what they it have is. been trying everything with your life. Yeah. But the, <clears throat> I kind of felt like, I wish I could move around more because at a certain point, like, I'm far away from the exit, and if I can't fly out of here, I'm going to miss my we train. We were, like, so close to going to the exit, and, like, we, we had, like, been inching because it's almost like a clock, you know, and so we were going, like, clockwise, and we finally were, if we needed to be at 12 o'clock, we were, we were finally at, like, 9 or 10, and then they were like, move it back! And <laughs> You we were, were going like, the other no! way this time! <laughs> but that's so crazy to say because for half an hour... We were so close to these performers. I mean, when you say you could reach out and touch them, we did. There are moments where the, the Marcoses, they use the audience as their, you know, sort of their political rallies. And they, you're right. They, and they do, like, live political, like, campaigning that is, like, being streamed onto walls. And what's yeah. so cool is, like, 
for like the transcripts that they're saying and how they're like you know speaking to the audience they will pull audience members in to be on camera to have yeah. them projected all over the theater and be like my mother really believes in me and they choose an older woman and yeah. they'll be like and you know and i'm here for the young people and you know yeah, like yeah. they do it's it's so cool it's you feel like you literally like belong in this world um it was just unlike anything i've ever seen and what's so so smart about the show is it's a show about terrible people really true truly terrible people who did their very best to run the country into the ground for 20 years and who uh uh stole from the country and they did terrible terrible things but what the show does is the show is so fun the show is so vibrant and it treats them like rock stars for 70 of the 90 minutes you know maybe more like an hour of the 90 minutes that it sort of emulates how people fall for this you can say oh i can see why i could look past all of these things that are happening because they're giving me what i want they're charming leaders they they do a lot of comparisons to the the kennedys and, and camelot right they're charming leaders. They're saying the things I want them to say. My and life we, is good. We like drama, you know, yeah, very yeah. reality TV and star of it all. And it's fun and life is good and my life is good. And so I and can they're like inviting people with power to their nightclubs and to their experiences. So you can yeah. see how if you are in power and you are in the position of keeping them in power, you're going like, well, they're giving me all the champagne I could possibly want. And I'm dancing with them. Like it's it's so like sexy, like the, yeah. like the appeal is so sexy. And then when the show switches and it's just now it's just the terrible things that they're doing. And now it's just the truth. And now it's just the political revolution that's tired of them. You go like, well, of, of course, like now the show has to be dour. Now it has to be downbeat. Now, now it has to be, I mean, really, there's a, a, a political assassination that it, I literally went like, <gasps> like yeah. it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, I will say like in that moment, obviously it's a political assassination. Um, that moment. The, the show does not pick back up in a in in, right. in a like fun vibrant way obviously right. like i don't need to explain so, why that happens so the show itself is just the perfect metaphor for how these people come to power how populism works how dictators take how over propaganda how works. propaganda works and then when the truth comes out and it all crumbles the show itself in its in its invention emulates that perfectly and and it flips on its head in such a like other than like again it's an assassination i'm just gonna spoil it it's a very loud gunshot like obviously that is like inducing of some feeling but i just separately like from then on it flips on its head in such a way that you are just almost like you feel like sick to your stomach for falling for it, for having a good time, for not realizing the gravity of the situation. It is so impactful. That moment is like really tied it all together for me. I feel like I was having like a really good time and I was learning along the way. Like, but you could say that for a decent number of things. But that moment in the last like 20 minutes of the show is where I went like, oh my God, they nailed it. Exactly. And there's, there, listen, there's a lot of criticism about this show of people who especially people who were in the philippines during this time of martial law or escaped this time of martial law or you know have family that experienced this regime whatever it is who cannot um 
they cannot co-sign on that. They don't think it's cool at all that for even a second the Marcoses are are rock stars. That for an you know two thirds of the show's runtime, they are um, you know the 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 leaders of this discotheque and they are the stars of the show. And I can understand that criticism wholeheartedly. If this was something that I had more of a connection to, maybe I would feel that way, and maybe I would feel like it was it was made light of or something, right? My perspective is I think that it is uh, – it's sort of that – and I wrote about this um, uh, uh, a couple movies that touch on this a couple months ago on the site, um, that third wave experiment in that California classroom a long, long time ago where the teacher sort of showed how quickly Nazis could come to power by, like, emulating it in his own classroom and doing an experiment where, like – Within like an hour, the students had sort of totally fallen into his trap and he was the dictator of his own classroom. And this sort of feels like that. Like you're learning the lesson by like being put into yeah. it. And that's why I think the show is so brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I really just was really taken aback the whole time. I think that they like really master like, you know, uh, when I say loud, obviously it's loud in terms of sound, which free – free earplugs for you if you want them, which is great. Um, but the show is loud. But it also, I think, like, is a perfect metaphor, if we're going to be really on the nose about it, with just how, like, loud personalities can be and how, like, you can be entranced by loud personalities and you can be entranced by loud drama and, like, the noise, like, societal noise that surrounds people and how you can overlook things if that noise brings you humor or pleasure or guilty pleasure or whatever. Um, it's just, I mean, it's really, really spectacular. I had something else that I wanted to say, and now I've, now I've lost it. Um, once again, three leads here, really. Um, this show's primarily about Imelda Marcos and sort of her quote-unquote rags to riches story, even though that's complicated in its own light. Ariel Jacobs, who was the original Jasmine in Aladdin, was the original Nina in In the Heights. Um, she's a replacement for this, though. Most of these people have done it over the years. They did it in, in the public. They did it maybe in Seattle and some of the stops in between. Um, I believe this is her first time in the show, and she's really, really great. Um, Jose Lana, I hope I'm saying that correctly, plays President Marcos. He's been with the show the entire time. And, and you can really feel that. And he also, his family, uh, uh, he was born under martial law in the Philippines, I read, and his family fled this um, this political regime. Um, and you can see that he kind of brings that intensity to the role, that familiarity. Um, Conrad Ricamora, uh, might be Ricamora, um, plays sort of the um, the leader of the rebellion. The rebellion. I, guess you could say. I think it's the People's. I'm going to get it wrong. It's the people something i'm so sorry the people power revolution um and and he once again the show does such a great job you kind of um don't trust him for a while because Imelda doesn't trust him and then obviously he he becomes sort of the moral center of the story and you go like well duh you know um he's really great and it's like the hardest working ensemble 
um, in, in on Broadway right now. Yeah, maybe. I was going to say, like, you know, there are not a ton of, like, bit characters. Like, there aren't, like, many people who really play anything other than just, like, ensemble and they make pictures and they maybe have one line here or there, but it's very clearly supporting someone else and, like, driving that person's narrative. However, in saying that, the ensemble is brilliant. I mean, they are giving it their all, even though, like, they don't have anything specifically for themselves rooting them to a particular character. Like, they are just, like, they, I mean, they're just, it's a master class in, like, a powerful ensemble. One thing that's happened in this version of the show, in this building, is that however things have been built, <laughs> the platforms are very tall. And you cannot just walk from a platform off the stage. You have to duck. And I don't mean just like, oh, I'm a tall guy on an airplane duck. I mean, like, you have to, like, crouch, crouch over. Also, and so you and when you're right there, you're like, God, please don't hit your head. God, please don't hit your head. One thing that I did think was just kind of funny, it was, I don't want to say it was distracting at times. Like, I say that in saying that, like, I'm just a distractible person. There was, like, a time in the last 30 minutes of the show where, once again, my back was killing me, and I was just kind of, like, dazed and confused looking around a little bit. But, like, you can see, like, all of the backstage area is on your same level, and they don't block it off through doors. They just do it through that, like, tinsely, like, um, like hanging things that you, like, put on your door as a teenager or whatever um, in the early 2000s. And so you can just see them, like, taking off their shoes and, like, changing clothes behind there. And I thought that that was kind of funny. Um, I, 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 it didn't, like, take anything away, but it was just kind of like, you're working right now. Yeah, yeah. You're you are working right now. Drinking our Gatorade, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I cannot stress enough. We're we're really running out of time here, but go if you're in the area and you're uh, for over the next two weeks, go see Here Lies Love. Even if you're like, fuck that dance and stuff. I do not want to stand there for an hour and a half. I got bad knees, or that freaks me out. I would be too anxious. I totally get that. Go see the show. They um. They build platforms all around the mezzanine and the balcony, and the show will just, like, appear in the aisles, and they have people uh, in those sections get up. I do think being on the dance floor is the best way to see it. Um, if I had uh, more time in the city and the show had more time in the city, then I would like to see it again, and maybe from a, a, a sitting perspective, just to kind of see things from a different angle. I'm sure it's still bringing up there. It's definitely worth it, especially worth it because, like, you can get cheap tickets to the show. You can walk up to the box office, and they can sell you any type of ticket you want. I also want to say that, like, although we did not we did not sit, and I cannot speak from experience, from my, my perspective looking up, it seems like probably if you want kind of the best of both worlds, like, you really want to be immersed, but you also want to sit, I would say try and be in the front row on either the sides or in the front um, mezzanine, uh, because that way you are, like, you can, they let you, like, fully rest on armrests in front of you, which, like, not every place will let you lean like that. They do let you lean so you can really peer comfortably into what's happening below you and um it feels like that would be the best to be the best of both worlds a, a lot of things happen up there like right next to you um in those particular areas so i would say maybe try that if you aren't so keen on standing just try and be as close as possible but really i don't think that there's a bad seat there but you got to go fast because it's, it's ending soon. And even Merrily is also – Merrily is a limited run. These people, they're going to go off. they got things to do. It only goes through, like, March. So it's really trying – it's like that's really before the beginning of the Tony season. You know, everything opens in, in March and April because that's, like, the deadline. 
Marilee's kind of getting in there before, and I and I hope Here Lies Love gets a little bit of, of love. Um, excuse me for that um, when the time comes because it, it really, really is great. And, like, you can see, if I had seen this at the public 10 years ago, why it would be spotless, perfect. I mean, like, that's the best place for it. That's the best time for it. Um, you can see why people loved it so much then. It should have transferred then. You know, they should not have waited 10 years and spent $22 million it was doomed from the start, which is really unfortunate. But that doesn't mean that the people behind it haven't put together a really, really great show. Yeah, so um, go see it. If you don't, if neither of these shows interest you, you are listening to this and they just don't seem like your cup of tea, just go see something. Um, the arts are struggling right now. You know, theaters are struggling all over regionally at, you know, your small theaters, your community theaters, and your big Broadway shows. Uh, the arts really need some love and attention right now. So if you are someone who went to see live shows before the pandemic and haven't really returned or you've never really dipped your toe into that but you're interested, just go. You never will know your tastes without going and experiencing things things and seeing what you like and what you don't like so um really i just i can't say enough like just go i have to go i have to go catch a movie so we're not gonna we're gonna save the spiel all of the places that you can find us our website all of the reviews podcasts everything that we do free stuff five days a week on our website in the description of this episode click on them check them out we talk about movies tv pop culture um, and a little bit of theater when we have the chance. We have some more theater episodes planned in the future. We obviously see stuff around us all the time, but we like to travel and see stuff. And so um, first time on this podcast, but will not be the last time. Uh, thank you, folks, for listening. Thank you, folks, for being here. Click those links. Um, save me the spiel, but click them anyway. And uh, we'll see you next time. See you then.